it's good morning, everyone. It's uh, it's a privilege to be with you, uh, and it's always a privilege to uh, be with a group of people who are interested in understanding Scripture better, and also um, meeting with those who believe that uh, preaching is uh, one of the primary tasks of ministry. Um, it's through the exposition of the Word that uh, we can uh, nurture our churches, and uh, the better we understand Scripture, I believe, uh, the better we can uh, perform that task of being pastors in that true sense of the Word. Now, the, the title for the, uh, the four sessions that we're going to have together today the title might not seem particularly profound, a fairly simple title, which is How to Read and Preach Biblical Narratives. But I did spend some time thinking about this, as uh, Japheth will uh, confirm. And really, it's a, a simple statement. How to read and preach biblical narratives is that if we can understand better how biblical narratives work, if we can understand better how to read these biblical stories, then we'll be in a much better position to know how to expound them, apply them. Because one of the basic characteristics of interpreting the Bible is that if you misinterpret Scripture, you are bound to misapply Scripture. And so the better, the better handle we have on interpreting Scripture, much better uh, we have a, as an idea as how to apply that correctly. So the aim of the presentations today are to investigate the potential of preaching biblical narratives for contemporary congregations. And, you know, the way in which biblical narratives work actually appeal a great deal to the way in which modern, postmodern, or whatever you want to call the culture in which we live, how contemporary people think. So yes, these are ancient stories, some you know, over 2,000, 2,000 and more years old, but the way they communicate and the way they charm us into understanding what they have to say, they do it in a way which appeals directly to, I think, our contemporary, particularly contemporary Western culture. But I hope that will become clear as we, as we move on. Now, there are many possible approaches to uh, dealing with this topic. Um, so what I'm going to do to begin with in the early part of our presentations is first of all to discover the nature of biblical narratives. What are they like? How do biblical narratives work? What expectations do these narratives have of their uh, readers and their, and their hearers? So. Um, Let's begin with uh, this observation that the Bible has got an awful lot of narrative in it. In the, in the Old Testament, at least one-third of the Old Testament is narrative, and in the New Testament, um, well, at least the same amount, maybe slightly more. When you think um, of the, uh, the Gospels, there's more in the Gospels than just stories and narratives, but we do get a lot of narrative in those Gospels. The Acts of the Apostles is an extended narrative of the early church. So there, uh, there's, there's plenty of narrative in the New Testament. There's even more in the Old Testament because the Old Testament, as I keep reminding my Old Testament students and being a professor of Old Testament, um, 
don't ignore the first 78% uh, of the Bible, okay? So simply because there is more of the Old Testament and so much of it is narrative, there's so many more stories there simply because of the, of the volume. So the stories we'll be looking at in our sessions together, we'll be looking at stories from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, but out of necessity in some ways, we'll be looking at some more Old Testament narratives simply because there are, there are more of them. And it's also my um, subtle way of suggesting that uh, you might want to preach a little more from the Old Testament as well, okay? Um, uh, now, why is there so much narrative in the Bible? Um, some people might say it's a rather indirect means of communicating God's truth, and perhaps a little belittling. Why not just give us profound theology? Why not give it to us like Sir Thomas Aquinas or Augustine from the outset? Why tell stories? And the reason for that, I think, is that the Bible as a whole is a product of the Semitic mind. It's written largely by uh, Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, um, almost exclusively. There are, there are some exceptions. And for the Jewish, the Semitic Hebrew mind, when you wanted to talk about profound matters, you told a story. So if you were in, um, you know, if you were here in Boulder, uh, maybe this has happened to you, I don't know, you're walking down the street, somebody recognizes you as being a pastor, and they come up to you and they say, excuse me, but what is the meaning of life? Now, I'm not quite sure how you would respond if somebody did that, but I suspect that what we would do as pastors is give a theological answer as to the meaning of life. But if you were in ancient Israel, in Jerusalem, and you were walking down the street and you, you met somebody in coming in your direction, and you went up to them and you said, excuse me, but uh, could you please tell me what is the meaning of life? They would respond, let me tell you a story. Because it's through stories that we communicate the human aspect of our relationship with God. Not abstractions, not theological platitudes or generalizations, but specifics of how we as human beings, made in the image of God, how we relate to our creator and to our fellow human beings. So let me illustrate that a little bit. If we were to ask the question, uh, what is salvation? Um, we might answer that question in a number of ways, but let me show you two ways in which that question has been answered. Uh, what does it mean to experience salvation? Well, one way is to express it this way. Now, what you see there on the screen is a condensed version of the uh, fundamental belief number 10 of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So, let me read this to you. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent of our transgressions, and exercise faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ, as substitute and example. Through Christ, we are justified, adopted as God's sons and daughters, and delivered from the lordship of sin. Now, I think most Christians would be in agreement with that condensation of the experience of salvation. 
as you see, it's, it's very theological. As long as you know what we mean by uh, the Holy Spirit, sinfulness, transgressions, faith, uh, substitution, example, justification, adoption, and, uh, and sin, as long as all of those things are clear, it's perfect, it's as plain as the nose on your face. Now, if you ask me, is it true? Well, yes, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with it. But, you know, this is the way in which we typically present uh, matters. When I've scoured the uh, internet for examples of uh, good sermons, and I must admit that on some occasions it has been a fruitless search. But when, I, when I've scoured the internet for examples of good sermons, many times I've discovered sermons which are really based on this understanding with one or two illustrations. But typically this is not the way in which the Bible expresses itself. Uh, how did Jesus explain salvation? Well, he said this, and Jesus said, there was a certain man who had two sons. And you all know the rest of the story, don't you? A certain man who had two sons, and the younger one said, you know, give me my part of the estate, I'm off. He went off to a foreign country, wasted his money, came to his senses, came back to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does his father do? He ran to meet him. You know, in the ancient world, old men didn't run. It's not because they couldn't. It's because it was unseemly. It would be, uh, people would look out of the window and say, look at that fellow making a fool of himself running down the street. But this father doesn't care because he saw his son a long way off. Now, when I read that story, it moves me in a way that fundamental belief number 10 does not. Are they both true? Yes, yes, they are both true. But the story communicates immediately. And I believe it's true to say that once you've heard the parable of the prodigal son, you hear it once, you never forget it. Isn't that true? It stays with you. And um, we're going to be exploring some of the, the ways why it is that the, uh, that story stays with us. So let's have a look at some, some and I've only got a, uh, a few samples really just to illustrate the case, but let's look at some of the um, characteristics of biblical narrative. What should we bear in mind when we come to biblical narratives, if first of all, we're going to understand them, which is the first step towards preparing a sermon on them. We've got to first understand what we're dealing with. Well, the, one of the first things that's important to remember about biblical narratives is that they do teach. It is one of, the, one of if not the primary biblical way of teaching, but biblical narratives are not propositional. They don't begin with Roman numeral number one, A, lowercase a. I see some of you taking notes, so, uh, you know. That, 
that isn't the way in which the Bible typically teaches. What, what it does, it engages us, it engages us as readers and hearers, and it communicates indirectly. It assumes that we understand how narratives work. So as the Holy Spirit, I was talking about this just before the meeting, as the, as the Holy Spirit inspires scripture, the Holy Spirit chooses literary forms that people of the time understand and pours into that framework the radical truth that the Spirit wishes to communicate. So, narratives communicate and they persuade indirectly. They present their material and we respond to it and interact with it inductively. It does not present truth deductively, as in, here is the truth and what's more, I'll prove it to you. No, it doesn't do it that way. So, this form of communication encourages dialogue. The story proceeds, we respond to it, and it's as if the story is saying, what do you think of that? And you come back and you say, well, I think it's probably this. And you say, well, let me give you a little bit more. It persuades us, it nudges us, it says, what do you think of this? Because it wants us to be participants in what Scripture is aiming to do. Not passive receivers, but participants. And I think we'll see how that actually operates in more precise ways as we look now at some specific characteristics of the, uh, <clears throat> of the way the texts work. And incidentally, if that is the way that biblical narratives work, what I would suggest is that when we are preaching biblical narratives, we need to preserve that. So we don't take a narrative which communicates inductively, de-storify it, you won't find that in the, in the dictionary, but you know what I mean, de-storify it, and then preach a deductive sermon. The reason we remember these stories so well is because they communicate inductively. And uh, I'd suggest we need to try to preserve at least some of that as we preach. Now, one of the first and major characteristics of biblical narrative, which is not true of modern Western narrative, and a characteristic we often misunderstand and therefore don't appreciate as much as we should, is the characteristic of repetition. That when you start reading biblical narratives, you will find in them repetition. So, I'm going to have a look with you at a passage which will be well known to you, I think. Now, it is, I, I hope that um, you can more or less see this all on, on one slide. Um, I'm going to take the time to read it. It's a story of uh, the prophet Elijah on Mount Horeb. So let's just read it and then we'll point out some characteristics. As we read it, first of all, since we're talking about repetition, see if you pick up any repetition, okay? Then he was afraid, he got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. 
He got up and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Now let's just go through this and pick out examples of repetition. We'll pick them out, then we'll come back to them and see what we make of them, okay? So, first of all, uh, do you notice there that um, we read that he, he fled for his life and um, asked that he might die. He says, take away my life. They are seeking my life. They are seeking my life. So, there's a great deal there about life and death. Then, uh, notice the two questions repeated. Uh, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And then, he answered, he answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. And then, we look at the green print uh, font down here again. He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. I don't know if any of you particularly observant folk have noticed a slight similarity between those uh, last two statements. Okay? And then, but the Lord was not in the wind. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now you notice the amount of repetition that we have in this. And this kind of repetition is typical of biblical narrative, particularly uh, Hebrew Old Testament narrative conveys a meaning through repetition. But it communicates it indirectly. So, for example, when we look at the beginning, uh, the first example we saw, he fled, he fled for his life, asked that he might die, take away my life, they're seeking my life, they're seeking my life. We know from all that repetition that this story is a story of life and death. But also, something else, have you noticed? He fled for his life. Now, when you flee for your life, what are you trying to do? You're trying to save your life, aren't you? You flee for your life, you're trying to save your life. And the next thing he says is, 
He asked that he might die. Really? I mean, if you want to die, Elijah, just stay where you are. But you see, to flee for your life and then ask that you might die, I would suggest is communicating that Elijah is confused. He doesn't know what to think. Maybe he's so depressed he can't make it, but the fellow is confused. But the narrator does not say, having taken a thorough medical analysis of the prophet Elijah, my prognosis is the following. No. He tells us what Elijah says here and what Elijah says there, repeating on a theme, and we say, hang on a minute, this is telling us something. Uh, and that's the reason why we have repetition. And then the repetition where in answer to the two questions God asks him, let's look at this, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives his answer. And after that we get uh, wind, fire, earthquake, still small voice, a tremendous um, revelation of God. And God says, right, now, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives exactly the same answer. Exactly the, exactly the same answer. Is he doesn't understand the significance. I mean, this has happened to me many times in class, you know, where I ask a question, I get the wrong answer, but you don't say to a student, don't be stupid, that's the wrong answer. You say, okay, now, let, let me explain that, okay. Now, we say this, this, this. Now, what would you say, what would you say is the answer to that? And I've got exactly the same answer. Either I haven't explained or the student has, well, it's the student's fault. And as a lecturer, as a lecturer, that's always my default position. It's the student. Okay. But you see, um, the, the repetition suggests that. But I would say, because it's a narrative, we're tuned into the way in which narratives work. We pick up on that. So it's not that we are making the text say whatever we want it to, to say, but we're understanding something about narratives. They will rarely communicate directly. They communicate indirectly, and we put together the clues provided by the narrator and then draw our conclusions. Now, if we are going to be preaching on narratives, I'd suggest it's a good idea to preserve some of that in our preaching so that we don't make all of the decisions for the congregation. That we, in one way or another, through the preaching process, say the equivalent of, and, and what might you think of that? Now, of course, as preachers, you know, we want to sort of keep our congregations on an even keel because we might know what certain members of the congregation might make of that, okay? But we're not making all of the decisions giving all of the direct answers and conveying everything deductively when the, the narrative on which we are preaching is communicating this inductively. Um, then another aspect, another variation, if you like, on repetition is the uh, phenomenon of intertextuality. Now what this is, simply speaking, is, is this, is that uh, the Bible will give us a, a narrative 
And then perhaps later in the same book, or we might read it elsewhere, we come across another story, and in reading that story, we say to ourselves, this reminds me greatly of this other story. And one of the ways in which the Bible works is that I would say it's quite clear that in, we have story A, and then we have story B, and story B exploits story A by drawing the, our attention back to story A, it is telling us about the significance of story B. Um, so let's, uh, and it does that, it does that by repeating vocabulary or ideas or concepts from story A and recycling them, if you like, in story B. Let's stay with the prophet Elijah and have a look at the comparison between Moses and, uh, Moses and Elijah. So we're looking at the presentation of Moses in the book of Exodus and of Elijah in, in 1 Kings. Now in Exodus, we are told, then Moses went up to Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 19.3. And in 1 Kings, we read that Elijah went as far as Horeb. Now Horeb is just an alternative name for Sinai, so we're talking about exactly the same mountain. So Moses goes to Sinai, Elijah goes to Sinai. With Moses, Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. In 1 Kings, we talk that Elijah says 40 days and 40 nights he travels as far as Horeb, that is, to Sinai. In Exodus, God says to Moses, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And in 1 Kings, we're told there that Elijah went to, and this is important actually, Elijah went, he, and there he went into the cave. Now, almost all uh, English translations simply say that Elijah went into a cave. Now, that isn't what the text says. Uh, it has the definite article there in the Hebrew. It says, Elijah went into the cave on Sinai. Now, what could it mean when it talks about the cave on Sinai? I'd suggest it's exactly the same cleft of the rock in which Moses is. Not any old cave, but the cave on, um, on Sinai. Uh, and then we have uh, Moses. Uh, God says to him, I'm going to put you into uh, this cleft of the rock while my glory passes by, Moses. And then in 1 Kings, we read... The Lord, Elijah, is about to pass by. It's exactly the same verb in the Hebrew. So after a little while here then, we're beginning to pick up on something. And I would say that if you're reading 1 Kings and you already know Exodus, you're beginning to say, hang on a minute, it seems to me that Elijah is reliving the experience of Moses through repetition, okay? Um, let's see how this moves on. Um, we're still with Moses and Elijah. In Exodus, we read that the whole mountain shook violently. In 1 Kings, there was an earthquake. Well, it's essentially the same thing, isn't it? How, does, how in the world do you get a mountain to shake violently? There's an earthquake. An earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. With Moses... The Lord descended upon it 
in fire. So the Lord is in fire, right? Reveals himself in fire. In 1 Kings, though, we read, after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, ear-splitting thunder. In 1 Kings, what do we have? After the fire, a sound of sheer silence. That is to say, yes, Elijah is reliving the experience of Moses, but there's a twist at the end. Here, God no longer communicates in thunder, Elijah, but through a still, small voice, silence contrasting with ear-splitting thunder. So this is a, a mechanism within biblical narrative of repeating enough elements, and enough elements of story A into story B in order to make another, to, in order to make a main point, which is, on this story I would suggest that God has moved on. Just because God communicated with Moses in that way doesn't mean that he's going to communicate in that way forever and a day. Because when he comes to Elijah, it is a new time, a new place, a new need, and therefore God does something differently. That is to say, we cannot simply assume that what we do in the present has to reproduce precisely what we've done in the past. And you say to me, the narrator doesn't say all of that. No, but it's subtle. Asking us to use our imagination. And this is how biblical narratives persistently, repeatedly work. Inductively, indirectly, asking us, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at that. What do you make of that? Within the context of the story as a whole, it makes us participants in understanding what uh, the scripture wants to uh, reveal to us. Then there is um, another aspect of uh, biblical narrative. As I said, these are just some examples and many, many more. We don't have time for all of them. But one that I think would be worthwhile looking at is deliberate ambiguity. And uh, if we go to this a well-known passage in uh, Genesis 32. It is the incident where Jacob is returning from his uncle Laban. He comes to the river Jabbok, and there he wrestles at night. I don't know how many of you have preached on this uh, on this passage, um, but uh, let, let's see uh, what, what we find here. Let's, let's just read it, and then I'll point out the ambiguity, I believe, that we find in it. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, 
But Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. Now, if you um, ever read any uh, commentaries on Genesis, you'll know that one of the questions that commentators have habitually asked over the years is, who is the wrestler? Now, there are some weird and wonderful suggestions, many of which have nothing whatsoever to do with the text, but with a fertile imagination of some scholars reading Aristotle and others. Okay. Um, but what does the text say? Because if, if you're going to find out who the wrestler is, our first port of call must be the text. Well, notice that it starts by saying, a man, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Okay, well, uh, that's okay then. It must be a man. Maybe it's Esau, because he was after him, wasn't he? Um, but then, later on, the wrestler says this. The wrestler himself says this. He says, you have striven, you have wrestled with God and with man. Now, that itself is a bit ambiguous, isn't it? You've wrestled with God and with man. When? In the past or right now? The wrestler. Is the wrestler both God and man? So that's clear then. We come, we come to the end, and what does um, Jacob himself say here at the bottom? For I have seen God face to face. So the wrestler then, a man, God and man, or God? I won't, put, I won't ask for a show of hands uh, on this, but do you notice not only that, but we have three points of view from three different sources. Who says that it is a man? At the beginning here, uh, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. The narrator is telling us it's a man. The second, God and man, that is the wrestler who tells us that. And at the end of the story, I've seen God, that is Jacob. So the narrator says it's man, the wrestler says man and God, and Jacob, God. That's at this point that I might ask students to write a, an essay for me to, to clarify this. Now, from our modern Western minds, when we read something like that, we say, big problem. Who is the wrestler? This is going to take at least a master's dissertation to nut this one out. But I rather think, I wouldn't say I know, because I don't want to be dogmatic, more inductive, as you understand. But what I think, because this is an example of something you find throughout biblical narrative, is that the passage is deliberately ambiguous. Because rather than it being a problem, this is an opportunity to understand that you cannot reduce our relationship with the divine to a simple answer.
let us preserve the mystery of our encounter with God and not break it up into an algebraic formula. So it is deliberately ambiguous not to confuse us, not to riddle the word of God with problems, no, but to say our relationship with God, our encounter with God is never that simple as Jacob's wasn't. So this is not a problem, it's an opportunity and it's a way in which the narrative, I believe, wants to preserve some of that mystery that we have in the presence of God. Then another aspect of biblical narrative, which we come across reasonably frequently, is uh, what is sometimes called multivalence. Um, I thought I'd throw that word in, multivalence, uh, because I know you want to <laughs> have further education here. Um, Multivalence, what it basically means is that, you know, as in any language, some words, many words perhaps, have more than one meaning. I mean, that's just common, isn't it? You look in a dictionary and you discover you have a single word and it has many meanings. I'm told that the English word set, I think in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word set is given 32 distinct meanings. Okay. So, sometimes the fact that a word can have more than one meaning is exploited in biblical narratives. I'm going to look at one example here. And this is um, in the book of Jonah, and we've got the use in the book of Jonah of the verb hafak. Hafak. Now, it means to overturn. So, it's, it's the verb which is used... Um, by Jonah himself. Um, Jonah has uh, a very brief sermon. In Hebrew, it's only five words. Some of our congregations might wish we take Jonah as our, as our idol. It's brief and to the point. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown, or Nineveh shall be hafakt. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, it's the same verb that is used, for example, in Genesis 19 to describe the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew Hafak, the cities in which Lot had settled. Um, so the verb can mean to overturn. Now, Jonah clearly was using his uh, key term, hafak, in his sermon. He knew what he meant. The problem is that hafak has more than one meaning. It can mean to overturn, or it can mean to turn around or convert. It has both meanings. So, for example, in um, Jeremiah chapter 31, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning, their weeping, into joy. I will hafak their mourning into joy. I'll convert their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for, for sorrow. Um, so then, in 40 days, 
Nineveh will be overturned, or in 40 days, Nineveh will be turned around. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, or in 40 days, Nineveh will be converted. So was Jonah's prophecy fulfilled, or was it not fulfilled? Well, you see, what I think the narrative is doing to native speakers who know that this word has got more than one meaning, it's conveying the idea, you know, how Hafak turns out depends on our response. Lack of repentance might lead to this kind of Hafak, but repentance will lead to that kind of Hafak. And I think you can see the smile on the face of the original hearers of this story as they realized that like Jonah, they too were fooled at the beginning. Because like Jonah, we assume it can only mean destruction. And then we go into all kinds of deep theological reasons to explain why Nineveh was not destroyed. It's all in the play on words. Subtle, but profound, I think. Then there is another aspect of biblical narrative which um, is used occasionally, and that is physical description of characters. Now, it's a, it's a strange fact, uh, at least when you first come to biblical narrative, to discover that the Bible does not very often tell us what a character looks like. We have no clue what... Um, uh, Moses or um, Elijah or even Jesus looked like physically hardly anything. But the physical description of a person can convey indirectly something which is very important. So, for example, um, when we look here at uh, this uh, description of Absalom, when Absalom cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. If you're picking up on repetition, you've got some idea that um, something's here. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. When we come to this and we say, ah, look, it's describing something about Absalom's physical appearance, you can know in the margin of your Bible, mark it up, get the highlighter out, because this is going to be significant. When the Bible gives physical description of somebody, it is always, I mean always, I'm not usually dramatic, you know, dogmatic, as I said, but this is a fact. Physical description in a narrative means take note of this. This is going to turn up somewhere. Now, um, let's, uh, we'll come back to that at the beginning and uh, we'll say to ourselves, here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 14. We've got a description of Absalom and the hair on his head. That's going to have a part to play in this story. We'll read the rest of chapter 14. It isn't mentioned. Chapter 15 then, we say to ourselves, not mentioned. Chapter 16, mm -mm, nothing in chapter 16. Chapter 17, not in chapter 17, we're beginning to uh, question the great truth I just enunciated, that physical description always has a part to play. And then we come to chapter 18, and there, lo and behold, there it is. 
Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Now, here's a profound question for you. Why do you think his head got caught in that oak? Could it be that his head got caught in that oak as he's on his mule rushing through the forest, 200 shekels worth of hair on his head billowing in the breeze, you know, like a ship in full sail, and he hits that tree and his hair snags in the tree. Because look back to that first uh, statement in chapter 14. He cut the hair of his what? the hair of his head. And we say to ourselves, well, of course it's the hair of his head. You know, he's not shaving his legs or his chest. Of course it's his head. But it wants to repeat it. He, he cut and weighed the hair of his head. Now, just look at what's happening here. We're told that he, in that first statement, Abstam cuts his hair once a year. He used to cut it, we're told, when it was heavy on him. Well, it would be after a year. And then it says he weighs it. He weighs it, 200 shekels. I mean, how many of you get your, I know some of you seem to be follically challenged, but if, if you get your hair cut, is it normal to get it weighed? That first, as if, you know, Absalom is saying, oh, you know, um, what a marvelous harvest this year. That first statement, gives the impression of a self-centered, narcissistic individual, completely self-obsessed because of the hair on his head. And the second statement, his head gets fastened in the tree. That marks his end. And it is saying, dear reader, put together the first statement with the second statement. And it's a inductive way of saying, why did Absalom come to his end? Because of his pride, his self-centeredness, his obsession, his narcissism, that's what did him in. And of course somebody might say, but the narrator doesn't say that. Well, no, if you're waiting for the narrator to tell you the most important things about the narrative, you'll be waiting all day. Because biblical narrators don't and if you say, well, they should, well, they didn't. So let's work with the narrative as we have it, rather than as if we were writing it. There's another example of um, physical description here. Um, this concerns the judge, Ehud. And you remember, in the book of Judges, we go through a series of uh, judges who come and rescue Israel. And here in Judges 3, verse 15, but when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gerar, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Physical description. Now, why in the world does it make any difference whether he was left-handed right-handed or ambidextrous. But we say to ourselves, this is physical description. 
It's always going to be important, so I'm going to make a note of this. And when you look at this um, here, simply in the English translation, that's enough to sort of, you know, prick up our interest. But let's look at this a little more closely at the underlying Hebrew. So we're told that the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud son of Gerar, the Benjaminite. Now, Benjamin in Hebrew, Benjamin, means son of the right hand. Son of the right hand. But Ehud is a left-handed man. However, it's a little more subtle than that. Because while English translations normally say that Ehud is left-handed, what the Hebrew says literally is that he was restricted in his right hand. Hmm. So he's from the tribe of the right hand, but he's restricted in his right hand. I wonder what that might mean. Well, one thing it might mean is that Ehud is a physically handicapped person. He's restricted in his right hand, and like all of the other judges, with the exception of Samson, who's a special case, the judges are unlikely heroes. Deborah's a woman, Gideon is timid, Jephthah's the son of a prostitute kicked out by his family, and Ehud also. If he was applying for the job, he probably wouldn't get it. The committee would turn him down, perhaps. And of course, if you know the story of Ehud and obese King Eglon, you'll know that it is highly significant that Ehud is restricted in his right hand. Um, now, what I'm going to ask you to do now um, well, in fact, uh, let me just, uh, before I do that, let me just give a summary of these initial observations, okay? Just to sort of map briefly where we've been. And as I said, these are just uh, selections. You know, you could multiply this list many times. But biblical narratives tend to communicate indirectly. Now, occasionally they might do so directly, yes. But generally speaking, they communicate indirectly. And significant narrative strategies include these. Repetition, intertextuality, telling story B in the light of story A and repeating themes and words and so forth. Deliberate ambiguity, multivalence, that is using words which have more than one meaning in order to subtly convey ideas. And the occasional use of physical description, as with Absalom, as with Ehud. But when we have it, it's always significant for understanding the story. So, so if you've worked through the, the passage in Judges concerning Samson, looking at uh, these various characteristics, these are some of the things that you will um, have seen, I'm sure. You'll have seen repetition in Judges, uh, and the repetition, so in Judges 16, 4 to 22 rather, uh, we have it repeated, please tell me, how could you be bound? That's presented to us three times. Uh, and then uh, Delilah's uh, 
shout when uh, Samson is uh, incapacitated. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. We get that four times. Uh, and then she says, you have mocked me. She, we have that three times. And then, and told me lies. We get that twice. And, uh, well, and so on. I think if you spend time looking through it, you'll find quite a few more repetitions. Um, then, in addition to that, of course, we have physical description. Quite a little bit of physical description here in this account. So, we know here, uh, what makes his strength so great? Verse 5, so strength is a matter of what kind of physical presence does, does Samson have? Also, it talks about the seven locks of my hair. So now we get an insight as to what he might look like. Has seven huge locks of hair, because his, hair, his head has never been shaved in his, in his life. He says, a razor has never come upon my head, just to underline the fact that he has a huge head of hair. Uh, and incidentally, uh, we have somebody else, remember, whose destiny here rests in his hair. We saw somebody else whose destiny resided in his hair, and that was our friend Absalom. So we might want to have see a little bit of intertextuality here, uh, the hair of Samson and the hair of, of Absalom, who might be worthwhile considering. Uh, she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. So we get an idea of what he looks like now uh, with a shaved head. But the hair of his head began to grow again. Well, of course the hair of his head began to grow again. If it didn't, hairdressing would not be a profession. Every time you get your hair cut, it grows. So what in the, why give us such a banal statement at the end that his hair began to grow again? Well, it's a subtle reminder of something, isn't it? His long hair is a sign of his dedication to God. He loses it, but his hair began to grow. Now, if that's just data for our information, we don't need that, but it's an implicit suggestion as to the significance of that. Now, there is something else that we can just take a quick look at now, and that concerns intertextuality between two chapters in the uh, two episodes in the story of our friend Samson. We're going to look at two chapters. Uh, Judges 14, which gives us a story of uh, Samson and his wife, and Judges 16, this is the passage you've just read. Now, the passage you've just read then, you can think of this as being story B, we're going to look now also at story A. I want to take you through some of the similarities between these two episodes. So in Judges 14, we read there that once Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah, which is in Philistia, he saw a Philistine woman. Okay, this woman becomes his wife. In Judges 16, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The valley of Sorek is in Philistia. Delilah is a Philistine. And whereas the woman in Judges 14 is his wife, Delilah, we call her euphemistically, his girlfriend. Judges 14, the Philistines come to his wife. This is when he has given the riddle, remember? And they want to know the secret of his riddle. The Philistines say to his wife, 
his Philistine wife, coax your husband so that we might know what it is. And in Judges 16, the Philistines say to Delilah, coax him, find out this. In, Judge, in uh, Judges 14, his wife says to Samson, you do not really love me because you're not giving me the answer. In Judges 16, Delilah says, how can you say I love you? And in back in 14, and because she nagged him, this is his wife, because she nagged him, and in Judges 16, finally, after she had nagged him with her words, in Judges 14, on the seventh day, he told her. Now, astute readers of the text that you are, what do you think is going to happen in Judges 16? Well, you've just read it. So you know what happens. He told her his whole secret. So everything that happened in Judges 14 with his wife is repeated. Repetition, remember, is repeated in Judges 16. And what do we uh, conclude? Doesn't Samson ever learn? Can't he see the Philistines coming? It's not just that Delilah is saying, give me the secret of your strength, the secret of the strength, the Philistines are upon you, the Philistines are upon you. He's been through all of this before with his wife. And he's repeating exactly the same mistakes with Delilah. Samson never learns. And of course, if we remember the book of Judges, remember there's a cycle of history in the book of Judges. Israel did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He raised up someone. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer. Israel did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They're under an oppressor. They cry out to the Lord. He raises up a deliverer. Israel does that which is, and we say of Israel, doesn't Israel ever learn? Because Israel is Samson. Samson is Israel. What Israel does is what Samson does. What Samson does is what Israel does. But that, I would suggest, profound insight is never stated explicitly, indirectly, Induct inductively for us to discover and say, aha, and from such aha moments, great sermons arise. Thank you.